six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. Good afternoon and welcome to A Public Affair. My name is Rochelle Wilson and I'll be your host this hour. Last week, award-winning journalist, activist, and author Barbara Ehrenreich passed away at the age of 81. During her very influential career, she wrote 21 books, including the best-selling Nickel and Dimed on not getting by in America. So much of Barbara Ehrenreich's worldview-changing work and ethos resonates with what we do here at WRT, and especially here on A Public Affair. So I wanted to dedicate this hour to her memory by first discussing her life, work, and legacy with her friend and colleague, Alyssa Quart. Then, for the second half of the show, we'll play archived tape from when Barbara Ehrenreich came to the WRT studios in 1999 to talk about what was then her forthcoming book, Nickel and Dimed. Alyssa Court is executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and author of four books, including Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. She was a close friend and colleague of Barbara Ehrenreich. Her forthcoming book is Bootstrapped, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, coming our way this spring. Alyssa Court, welcome to A Public Affair. Oh, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much for making the time to join us to discuss this legacy. I know that you've been doing a lot of this work lately. And first of all, I do want to express my condolences for the loss of your friend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's actually extremely, <laughs> it's been extremely hard, but uh, act- talking about her helps. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And to those of you out there listening who have a brief comment that you'd like to share about how you've been influenced by the work of Barbara Ehrenreich, we can take your calls until just before 12.30 p.m. today. The phone number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. Barbara Ehrenreich's work has been so influential across decades. She's kind of like a rock star or an intellectual fairy godmother for many of us who have read her work from the distance. Alyssa Court, when did you first come across Barbara's work and how did your paths end up intersecting? Well, like many people of my generation, I'm Gen X. I came <clears throat> upon her work through, you know, I think it was like in college, I was in my 20s or I was a late teenager. And it was the book Fear of Falling, which I think had just come out. It was came out in 1989. And it was about the uh, contraction of the middle class and their status anxiety. And it was just so brilliantly funny and well-written. And it really changed my life. I remember reading it in a public park and being like, this is what, uh, this is the kind of work I want to do. So how did you end up meeting Barbara in person and coming to be her colleague? Well, she supported a film I wrote and produced called The Last Clinic. It was actually a multimedia project that was made with Maisie Crow, who's a fantastic director. And it was about the clinic at the center of Dobbs. Uh, 10 years ago, no, very few people were interested in it. Uh, And so Maisie spent a year there or something like that. And I I wrote and produced it. So I was involved um, a little more tangentially. But I had talked to her. She had just started EHRP about funding it. And she just knew so much about uh, reproductive rights. She knew about the story of Jane and... Uh, I feel like she she was friendly with people who were in Jane, the underground um, uh, abortion uh, uh, collective that helped women when it was pre row uh, get abortions. And then she also had been part of like women's movements, you know, consciousness groups kind of that discussed reproductive freedom. And uh, around the time that she wrote her first book, Mid 
witches and midwives. So I, I just was struck by the range of her mind. I, I had identified her as someone who wrote mostly about class. And I was like, wow, no, she knows a lot about this as well. I've noticed that, too, as I've been kind of reviewing her work. It's like her fingerprints are all over everything. <laughs> like Any topic that you might want to discuss, it seems like she would weigh in and, and say, have something to say about it. Um, Alyssa Court, your book Squeezed was actually compared to Nickel and Dimed. How did that make you feel? Oh, it's, obviously, it's like most excellent. It's, you know, <laughs> I feel like uh, may I may I touch the hem of your uh, you know garment? But um yeah, I was great. I mean, and definitely I highly influenced her as a person and a thinker and a writer. Um, and I think I was very influenced, especially by that book, Fear of Falling, because it took the middle class, it, it problematized it and it took it seriously and the status anxiety seriously. And what you're talking about her having like a real range of topics, like, yeah, like she also didn't think that there was, uh, she thought there was inherent politics and things like status anxiety or in things like cancer survival pink ribbons you know um or in midwives and witches you know um in masculinity and self-help 19th century self-help she saw uh the political meaning in that in a way that few others did because often politics is seen as like a inside the beltway thing or it's seen as a frontline activist thing which she was also but it's not seen in everyday life. And I feel like that was one of her uh, brilliant additions. Right. Well, her most recent writing grappled with her own battle with cancer and with the U.S. healthcare system. And it just, yeah, that mark that you're talking about where she's able to make these things that I think would otherwise feel sort of existential and individual end up being kind of a collective problem, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and also they might seem minor just like the stuff of life the contours of life they might seem you know cultural right um but she takes them like for instance i'm thinking of her book dancing in the streets which was about expression of uh, through music and physical movement across history right like you could say oh a dance party <laughs> what's the inherent political uh power of that but for her there is an immense amount of power in that there was it was a um it was a liberatory act, uh, dancing. Um, so I think like that kind of thing actually also helped people see the political power that they had in their own lives and in their communities. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Rochelle Wilson, and today we're reflecting on the life and legacy of journalist, activist, and author Barbara Ehrenreich with one of her dear friends and colleagues, Alyssa Court. And if you were influenced by the work of Barbara Ehrenreich, we want to hear from you. We have a shortened amount of time, uh, only until about 1230 today. So you'll want to pick up that phone right now. The number is 608-256-2001. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also find us on Facebook at A Public Affair or Twitter at WORT Talk. So I wanted to read this excerpt from Nickel and Dimed that's been making the rounds on the internet. And as you can tell, maybe you said you were Gen X and Fear of Falling was kind of your introduction to Barbara Ehrenreich. And I'm millennial. And so I feel like Nickel and Dimed is kind of our generation's introduction to the work of Barbara Ehrenreich. But I wanted to read this quotation, quote, when someone works for less pay than she can live on, she has made a great sacrifice for you. 
The working poor are in fact the major philanthropists of our society. They neglect their own children so that the children of others will be cared for. They live in substandard housing so that other homes will be shiny and perfect. They endure privation so that inflation will be low and stock prices high. To be a member of the working poor is to be an anonymous donor, a nameless benefactor to everyone, end quote. And in some ways, Nickel and Dimed is very of its time, coming on the heels of the welfare reform of the late 90s. And yet, on the other hand, not that much has changed. So in 2001, when the book was published, the federal minimum wage had just gotten bumped up to $6.25. Today, over 20 years later, it's only $7.25. Alyssa Court, what did Barbara make of this? Oh, I mean, this was her battle, and she was... completely appalled by the way that that poverty and even economic instability of people who were working class was um, demonized and uh, used as political currency uh, by various administrations, as you put it, also by the Clinton administration, but also later by, you know, Bush, too, and by uh, uh, Trump. (laughs) And um, so I I think she... um, she just thought it was incredibly important that we tell these stories. And that's why I uh, wrote uh, my book, Squeezed, and why I've been trying to get, along with my colleagues at Economic Hardship Reporting Project, the nonprofit that I run that she founded, trying to get people to write about what it means to be living uh, on that kind of money an hour. Uh, It means selling your plasma. It means um, working in a factory where you might see blood on the floor as one of our contributors had it it means uh being evicted so i I think that that barbara was completely committed to having as many accounts of this in the public domain as possible yeah and i keep thinking you know i know that she's been here to witness the pandemic for the last couple years but didn't have you know a full-length book come out what was her take on kind of disaster capitalism and the pandemic and how all of that played out well, we were very, uh, we had these really good conversations at the beginning of the pandemic about how we were going to cover this. <clears throat> and then we, we found this amazing piece, and I would love you guys, or maybe if people want to go to our site, um, econhardship.org, um, you can see this piece by Ann Larson. She was a supermarket worker, a grocery store worker, and she wrote about how she herself was curbside delivery and how the deep personalization of this language where, you know, and and a lot of readers of publications who might be otherwise consider themselves liberal were, you know, scheming of how to <laughs> engage in curbside delivery, right? And how to not go to stores and how to put other people's bodies on the line. And, you know, most of us did this, right? If we could uh, to get uh, Instacart workers to deliver for us, uh, our food for us so we didn't have to expose ourselves to coronavirus. But Barbara was very interested in, in showing this phenomena. And we also had an early piece by a worker of Spectrum, which is um, the uh, cable company who was forced to go into work uh, so he could make sure people saw the Lifetime channel. <laughs> um, and this is, I, I do a cackle, which is like a Barbara would cackle at that thought, you know, that this, this, this guy, uh, he wrote this scathing account of this, uh, will have to... Uh, go to work and he did wind up getting sick Um, and it was just really uh, clear who was being sacrificed and um, right so that was it fit her worldview and exaggerated it 
You're listening to Alyssa Court on a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We're talking about the legacy of Barbara Ehrenreich, who passed away last week at age 81 and has left an impression on so many of us. If you would like to call in with a question or comment, we really only have about 10 more minutes uh, in this segment. So give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. And we do have our first caller. Don, you're on the air. Uh Thank you very good afternoon. Thank you very much for the program. Um, much of Barbara Ehrenreich's work uh, really resonated with me. I've, I've lived a lot of what she's written about. Uh, the one book that uh, sort of gets lost sometimes is I believe it was called Bright Sided when it was first published about uh, the demands of the power of positive thinking upon all of us, especially by those, the rulers that we're all supposed to adopt this everything is great attitude and this is the best of all possible worlds and the very political nature of that and uh you know we all sort of live that even though sometimes it seems not so much but i just wondered um and forgive my memory i I believe that was the title of the book um i just wonder if you would be interested in commenting on that and thank you very much for the program bye oh yeah well thank you don um that was one of my favorite books too. And yeah, it does get lost. And I feel like it epitomizes her humor also, which is can't go be forgotten. I mean, I think she's one of the great political satirists up there with, you know, Jonathan Swift and, uh, you know, part of a line, uh, you know, where some of the best writing uses humor to turn uh, what we think we know upside down, which was sort of her, her technique constantly, the poor, the philanthropists of society say, or another sentence of hers was only the rich can afford to write about poverty. So she's using in, an inversion and an absurdity to get at the truth. With Brightsided, she did that too. And again, this is going back to uh, Rochelle, what you were saying about everyday life. I mean, she had had breast cancer. She had gone into these waiting rooms. She had had treatments and she'd gotten like makeup bags for the like, you know, girly stuff, lipsticks. And this was supposedly like, you know, good for you survivor. And, and in ordinary political writing, like this kind of detail would be shunted to the side, right? This is not political. This works. We're very serious people and we don't write about, you know, cancer survivor, pre- breast cancer awareness gift bags. But I mean, for her, she was like, no, this is about reinforcing gender and commercialism in a moment when women are at their most fragile. Um, and, you know, rather than organizing, you know, helping them organize themselves uh, for better health care that might have prevented having breast cancer. So it was like, uh, uh, and her overall feeling about self-help was that was what most of it did. It was, uh, there's a phrase by the philosopher Zizek, uh, the obscene supplement. And that's the thing that like, the thing that lets the steam out of politics by giving some giving the people something else. I mean, I guess opiate for the masses is another way to think about it. But like, they gave people self-help. They give people self-help as to uh, disable their political anger and their political energies, right? To to sop, satiate it and to sop it. So I think that that was her feeling. And she also just had a field day uh, with the the extremes that some of this stuff took. Uh, Also in Bait and Switch, which is another good one, uh, where she went into white collar uh, undercover in the white collar world. Um, that she also saw a lot of that too, motivational speakers and, um, and just, you could just see the pleasure she took in taking these people down. <laughs> so, I mean, some of it was the sheer joy and humor uh, of, uh, of, of attacking hypocrisy. 
I love a journalist who takes down a thought leader. I mean, there's just, could there be anything sweeter? And I, I wanted to dig into something you were just saying, because I think a lot of times class politics does sort of get gendered either male or like neutral somehow. Um, that if something is gendered for women or considered female or more feminine, that it kind of is something else. Uh, what... What was Barbara's take on gender and how she, as a woman doing this work, kind of fit into it? Oh, she was such a feminist and the best kind of feminist in my book. I mean, she um, would always and like they use the word intersectional now. And it's to me, it's like kind of it can be an exhausting word sometimes It's like every single intersection. But her intersections, her main intersections around gender and class were completely new it felt like and when she was pushing for them i mean uh waitressing uh cleaning you know in nickel and dimed uh going up the liberal feminist ladder in bait and switch bright-sided where she was um you know her uh, you know where breast cancer and other uh gender specific cancers were being targeted by commercial interests right and mocking that um, it was crucial and she had a real sense of solidarity with other women i mean she was a real feminist thinker, but also a feminist to her collaborators. Like I'm thinking of, you know, Deirdre English and Arlie Hochschild. She was very um, graceful and generous, and she was really graceful and generous with me. You know, we were a team, and she shared her thoughts. She shared her content, and uh, you know, I took over this project, and she was very um, collaborative, honestly. And so, and interested in women, interested in younger women um, who would carry on her legacy. And that that is really not that common and very wonderful. You're listening to Alyssa Court reflecting on her friend and colleague, the late Barbara Ehrenreich, here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We only have about five minutes to take your calls and reflections about Barbara Ehrenreich. So if you'd like to call in, it's 608-256-2001, extension 9. And we actually do have Greg on the line. Greg, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to, to put in my two cents about how profoundly important Barbara Ehrenreich's work has been uh, to me all my life. Um, and I, I wanted to mention uh, maybe a lesser known part of her, of her great work, which was a novel that she wrote in 2020 called Kipper's Game. Um, most people don't think of Barbara Ehrenreich as a fiction writer, but this is an incredible book. Um, she has a background, had a, originally a background in physics, uh, so Kipper's Game is kind of this wonderful metaphysical um, computer science fictional thriller um, that yeah, highlights another aspect of her great uh, talent and originality. Thank you so much, Greg. Alyssa, do you have a comment about that? No, and I've never read it, although I remember her cackling. Yeah, I wrote a novel. <laughs> you know, like she that was part of her worldview. It was like nothing there's no form i mean at some point i think they were talking about turning nickel and dimed into a play and i i feel like she was participated in that in some way i mean she didn't really she was a genre agnostic i'd say and um game to try stuff and now i really want to read it um yeah and her background as a scientist i think she went to rockefeller institution and i think it was biology um and she has a phd and but i feel like she applied the scientific method 
and the social scientific method to everything she looked at. So it, it wasn't like outside of her, it was part of her overall materialism, let's just put it that way, that she would look at these different phenomena as if they're worthy of study, uh, you know, with a journalist, but also an activist and a biologist's eye, you know, or a scientist's eye. And um, I was just had another thought also when we were talking earlier about the pandemic. And I do think she had a real sense of hope uh, based on some of the, you know, pack Biden early packages that were given to folks uh, early in the pandemic and also the eviction moratorium. So we, we had these conversations about this. We actually were trying to write something at some point, um, you know, early on in the pandemic in the that first summer about that, about the uh, double sidedness of the pandemic, about the people that we ha were working with who were suffering and people like them that were suffering on the front lines. And then also the kind of top down transformative policies that were being pushed through the most transformative since the New Deal. Of course, many of them were clawed back <laughs> or not were not passed at all, but others were, you know, like, look what's just happened uh, with the Biden administration's um, latest. So I think we we I think she had a really complex feeling about what American life was like during the pandemic. It really does bring me hope when I hear that someone like Barbara Ehrenreich also felt hope because I know it's not unearned coming from someone like her. And I did with the, just the last couple minutes we have with you, Alyssa Court, did want to look to the future. What kinds of projects are you doing at the Economic Hardship Reporting Project? Or what are you working on that you would like our listeners to know about? Because I think they'll want to follow you now that they know uh, the kind of work that you do. And it's so resonant with what we talk about here a lot. Oh, well, yeah, with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, we have a lot of fellows, uh, fellows who themselves come from working poor backgrounds or are financially stressed. So you can check that out. Also, Molly Crabapple, who is a wonderful illustrator, who you probably had on before, I don't know. Uh, she's a fellow. Um, and, you know, I personally am, you know, working to continue the legacy in ways I know how by creating a database of experts that are working class. Um, so journalists can then cite people who are either honestly radical or working class um, in have that at their fingertips, not the usual kind of Brookings um, uh, quick sourcing that often happens just out of expediency, not because the journalists are, you know, politically motivated necessarily. They just don't have the time. And so I'm trying to create that and launch that and uh, and also just do my own <laughs> writing, I guess. So Bootstrapped, my latest book, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, which is out in March, is taking uh, definitely a Barbara perspective on both the, the vicissitudes of the pandemic, um, you know, of, of this kind of exploitation of frontline workers and also some of the amazing things that have happened because of it, some of the interdependence that has grown up, the mutual aid networks, the cooperatives, uh, the participatory budgeting, uh, the collective efforts, the even the you know patriotic millionaires, the wealthy people who are really trying to make a difference, who aren't just buying into uh, you know uh, kind of top-down philanthropy, but are really engaging. So I feel like that is um, that's my new book, and it's carrying on her legacy and the vision that we both had. Well, thank you so much, Alyssa Court, for making the time to join us. We'll include a bunch of those links in our show notes. Uh, but that is all the time that we have uh, in our segment with you, Alyssa Court, Executive Director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and a close friend and colleague of the late Barbara Ehrenreich. Thank you, Alyssa, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Rochelle. 
Now we'll play an archived interview from October 1999 when Barbara Ehrenreich came to the WORT studios for an interview with Esti Denor about what was at the time her forthcoming book, Nickel and Dimed. Unfortunately, the end of the interview was cut off on the original tape, so we're playing a shortened version here, edited to fit this broadcast. Let's listen. And hello, welcome to you all to a public affair. My uh, guest today is Barbara Ehrenreich, a well-known journalist, and um, I called you in um, my publicity also a public intellectual, which I believe is something you call yourself, isn't it? Or, no. or is that my I, invention? I didn't make up that term. <laughs> I think it's a, uh, a polite way of saying an unemployed person. <laughs> <laughs> one of those, uh, in one of these pledge uh, drive shows, we talked to uh, Michael Parenti, who um, <laughs> we talked about his new book, which is called History as Mystery, which is about how they don't teach really history in this country and how um, historians who talk about what history really was can't find employment mm -hmm. so i guess that's your situation too to some degree oh no part of it is by choice uh, uh -huh. i okay. uh, you know have not sought academic careers or uh or anything because I, i've made a living freelancing and uh, enjoy that oops and <laughs> we're trying to get that oh. mic a little closer <laughs> okay can you all right <laughs> yeah thanks yeah no it's um <laughs> I enjoy my independence, and I teach, you know, part-time at different times, too. Uh-huh. Okay. And we are here partially to talk about work, um, mm -hmm. which is the topic also of your talk later today at the Haven Center. Do, do you have the yeah, details of your Yeah, at 3 o'clock in, I think it's Bascom Hall. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. The, on the campus. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what what is that talk about? Nickel and dimed. What did you do? Um, mm -hmm. Well, it all starts with my being very, very frustrated by the rhetoric uh, around welfare reform. You know, starting you know earlier in the 90s, the idea was, well, if you could just get these women off welfare and if they get a job, all their problems will be solved, right? They'll, they'll be lifted out of poverty. They'll feel independent. They'll, their self-esteem will shoot up and everything. Well, I could, you know, just do the arithmetic. The jobs that you're likely to get the sort of entry-level jobs you're likely to get um, if you've been at home raising children, for example, pay six, seven, maybe seven and a half uh, dollars an hour. And then you can look at rents in the area and you can just, you know, it's just arithmetic. It's not going to work. Um, you will fall short. You will not be able to afford to live indoors on the entry-level wages that are out there. Well, nobody seemed to listen to this. Uh, and so... Um, I decided to do something different as a journalist, and that is to put myself in that situation to an extent. You know, obviously it wasn't the same as, you know, I'd coming off of welfare. And just go, you know, move into the cheapest apartment I could find and uh, take, um, you know, the best-paying job I could find uh, consistent with you know, not I, I'm not saying I had not a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Look, there were no one ads for political satirists or anything, so I didn't have to worry about that. And uh, I, I've done this um, twice now. I, I did it in the area where near where I live in Key West in 1998, and then I just got out of a similar experience in in Maine. Oh. Uh, and so I've uh, spent uh, um, a total of two months at it. I've had such 
jobs as waitressing, hotel housekeeping, um, nursing homework, and uh, residential cleaning work, a corporate-type cleaning, not as an individual cleaning lady. And yes, it's true. <laughs> it's true. If you make those kinds of wages, you can't afford to pay rent. You know, it, it feels to me like I've gone to a lot of effort to make, a, to prove a simple arithmetic proposition. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's what I, I wrote up um, the first experience in Key West. It was an article in Harper's Janu- in January 99. And that uh, got a lot more response than most of the things I've written that, that, were, that were more dry, you know, that just uh-huh. gave the numbers. So I'm continuing with that approach um, and have this other life now as a low-wage worker in various places. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I, I have to tell you, I was starting to tell you that when we were sitting outside the studio, but I never got to finish it, that when I started reading it, I had a real knee-jerk reaction because I myself have lived in poverty. I was a mm-hmm. welfare mother for um, ah. some long, hard years, and um, it kind of... Yeah made me, <laughs> I had this knee-jerk reaction to, um, you know, middle-class person trying to um, get in there and, and um, see how it's like. But I have to say, the article, anyway, um, changed my attitude. <laughs> well, I had no uh, no intention or idea that of experiencing poverty by doing something like this for a month, as I said in the article. I have experienced poverty, you know, when my kids were small at various times. They were as close to it as I as I want to get. Yeah. I, I don't think it's something, Because you, know. you are right. You write somewhere there that, that the smell of poverty is the smell of fear. And it I think fear. that is yeah, it's, so it's, true. It scares me. And so I was very much a journalist, you know. I was just, let's see what kind of work you have to do for this kind of pay, how I, how little I, how little money I can spend and still get by. Um Although I wa- in, in, I must admit that in both cases it was very difficult to keep journalistic detachment, mm-hmm. too. I mean, that I, f- I couldn't keep it up, that there was a certain kind of emotional involvement and um, anger in yeah. some cases over the conditions um, I encountered. And, and tiredness and... Um yeah, yeah. Hopelessness and exactly the kind of feelings, I think, that people who live it, Feel. Well, I w- didn't feel hopeless. I knew my time would be up soon. Yeah, <laughs> no, it seems like towards <laughs> the end you did um, you did have moments of feeling like this was your life, and uh, maybe not quite. Well, you happy. can lose perspective, particularly like in this last case. I, I was working seven days a week, two jobs, and so you never have any any time when you you know you never have a day when you can just take a walk or something, or do any of those things to get perspective. And I felt like I was losing perspective. I felt that the things that were going on in my jobs were taking over my mind. I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking about, you know, did I forget to do this? Am I going to get in trouble about that? Is so-and-so mad at me and trying to, uh, you know, set me up for a fall in that job? Yeah, (laughs) and um, one of the people who worked with you, a young um, Czech person, a person from, well, there's not Czechoslovakia anymore, from from the Czech Czech Republic, actually did get caught stealing, which... Um, so it was alleged. Huh? So it was alleged, mm-hmm. and um, the way you describe it by the time you left, I guess they couldn't just let him go right away because they didn't have enough uh, dishwashers, but um, he was... Um, 
he was looking like a man who's going to get hanged. Yes, like. yeah. Yeah, and I felt, um, I think the worst thing for me in both all of these jobs is the, the helplessness. Um, you know, my impulse, and this comes from being a middle-class reformer and so on, is stop this injustice, you know, Barbara is here. <laughs> you know, we will do something about this. This can't happen. But when, um, and I did come out of character a little bit in the, certainly the most recent case, but I just didn't uh-huh. see what I could do. And also, I was feeling a little bit of the intimidation, too. Right. Um, yeah. Let's talk about management. What What is the role of management in these um, low-level jobs? Well, there are different kinds. In the, uh, the restaurants I was a waitress in, which are, I should say, um, you know, not fine dining restaurants, you know, much yeah. more closer to your truck stop level, but they were corporate things. They were part of national chains. These are not mom-and-pop situations. Uh, the management was not paid so well themselves. I mean, these are people making maybe $20,000 a year. Uh, but it was hard to see what they did. You know, a good manager could pitch in and help wait on tables, could help the cook out, but they didn't always do that. And so often you just had this guy sitting on his butt, and his real function was just to watch us. You know, this you were under surveillance. Were you going to steal something? Um, I don't know, what? Put a sugar cube in your pocket? Uh, were you going to, um, were you taking drugs, um, you know, spending too much time in the ladies' room, et cetera? So they, they, I figure in that situation their their job is to monitor a workforce which management does not trust and has good reason not to trust. If you pay people that little, yeah. it shows you have no respect for them. And when people know they're getting no respect... You know, their attitude changes. Y- you also keep them in poverty, so they must resort to other means to um, just maintain, especially those who yeah. have kids. Well, I I never witnessed anything any theft in that case. Uh-huh. In the in the house cleaning job, I again never witnessed theft, but it it clearly was happening. I mean, there was an incident, which our boss uh, summoned us for a meeting about. Uh, you know, it and. I could understand it. I mean, we were getting paid dreadfully little, and you would be cleaning very wealthy houses. Some of them would qualify as mansions, or at least Mac mansions, you know, the yeah. new five-bathroom kind of deal. For mm-hmm. And people, you know, m- the owners might leave out a stack of bills, and mm-hmm. they've got uh, somebody cleaning who um, probably does not have a dollar's worth of change in her pocket, and that's for lunch and everything else for the day. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's it's almost an invitation yeah. to theft. I mean, do you think they do it to see if people will steal, or they just don't think it's about possible. the fact that they have money there? That was rumored. I mean, I have no evidence on this, but it was said to me, uh, this was just, you know, sort of the folklore of the of the workplace, was that some people would leave out valuables and have a video camera poised there to watch to see if you would try to take them. Uh-huh. It's interesting that. that even if that's not true, the fact that this is the lore of the job tells you a lot about the uh, about the job itself oh, yeah, uh, no, and the about the feeling yeah. about the, these people who employ you. I mean, we, we went into these houses in teams. You know, we were not alone, though you could be alone in a room, the, the room uh-huh. you were working on. Uh, but we were told that you, we were to assume that we were being videotaped at all times uh-huh. so that the they couldn't, fi- you know, physically supervise us, but they could make us, you know, they could internalize that in your head. 
It's, it's somewhat <laughs> of a parable to the situation of your average person in the modern world, isn't it, or the United States of nowadays? Well, it's, it reminds me of something Foucault wrote about, which was uh, a prison designed in the 18th century, which uh, was designed so every person's every move could be observed from a central spot at all times. Uh-huh, which is kind yeah. of the way prisons are nowadays, and I think oh. it's, to a large degree, the way... If it isn't the case in the United States, I think people feel that way very much, don't they? That, that they're being they watched, mm-hmm. that Big Brother is out there, yeah. and, and, you know. Well, in the workplace you are. In the workplace you have uh, no right to, to privacy. And this was a shock to me. From the beginning, I was warned um, by fellow workers, um, don't have anything in your purse you don't want the boss to see. I said, huh? You know, it's my purse. Uh-huh. And, but uh, I found out, in fact, I checked with a friend who's a union organizer. I said, what's going on here? And, and my friend said, yes, they can. Anything you bring with you, once it's on the boss's property, is his or hers to go into. Hmm. So you really, really? You, yeah, you have no, uh, and I think another, are there other invasions of privacy? I think drug testing is an yes. invasion of privacy. I mean, yes. I don't think it's anybody's business what, you ingest when you're not at work, um, and 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 then they give you personality tests. Even for the most low-paid jobs, you might have to spend 15 minutes taking a quote survey or quote personality test. You actually mentioned one of them that you took for the Win Dixie supermarket, and I was wondering what you answered to the questions: um, Is safety on the job the responsibility of management, and uh, would you turn a fellow worker if you caught him stealing? Oh, yes, I would turn a fellow worker <laughs> in if I caught him stealing. You want to get the job. <laughs> I mean, you tests, say yes. Sure, the tests are a joke. I mean, yeah. if, any, if you can't figure out what the answer is supposed to be uh-huh. uh, on these things. Uh, have you seen those situations where, where workers turned each other in, or, or is there somewhat of a solidarity, at least among the lowest-level workers? I think it varies from place to place. I mean, different uh-huh. places have different kinds of morale and spirit. The The house-cleaning place was a very depressed, sort of sullen mood, I thought. And then, you know, people would rat each other out for some, for tiny infractions really? of the rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the boss, who was a franchise owner in this case, not a man, he was, he owned the little franchise. Um, he encouraged that. He said, if you're abs, you know, if somebody was absent, he would uh, get somebody who knew to be her friend to go after her and say, you know, are you really sick, etc." Mm-hmm. So he would, like, use people against each other. Do they get paid for ratting each other out? Or? I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. It, gee, that's, that's very disturbing. So, it is. So there's that, and then there's the low-level management who are paid very little, and their job is basically to make everybody else's life miserable. And um, then again, I think it's at the Winn-Dixie where um, when you went in the room where you were to wait for your uh, interview, there was this big poster of how dangerous um, a union can be to <laughs> your uh, work health. Um, yeah, it just said something about be you know beware a union organizer could will come and will promise you anything, but you know I can't remember. Then they'll rape your mama. <laughs> I didn't, they didn't go that far, but. Um, <laughs> So, so okay, so what, uh, what about workers' solidarity and uh, class consciousness and, and things like that? 
Well, see, I'm, I was not there to be an ethnographer and to study my fellow workers. Uh, I, you know, was talking and I had to, uh, for, for one thing, when you're new, you have to learn from everybody else. Yeah. And, and I needed, you know, company and, and support and friendship. But I wasn't studying them, and I would have felt awkward to be doing that without revealing who I was. Yeah. Which I only did toward the end in each job. But what I could observe is, uh, well, for one thing, people don't know about unions. Uh, or they, it's a very, very remote idea. I'm not sure that everybody... I would try to mention the word in any way I could. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure everybody knew what I was talking about. Hmm. That's interesting. So does that say something to us also about the level that the unions reach out to oh, the yeah. level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Th- I mean, we're not talking about dummies. And I'm talking, I'm ta- with very few exceptions, the people I worked with were bright, articulate, um, interested in things, you know, um, didn't have much time to read or watch TV even, or, um, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't their fault. I think that the unions are not a presence uh-huh. in the way they should be. Uh-huh. So there's a message here to unions as to yeah. how well they do what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I mean, I just wished so many times that I had a little, like, um, you know, plastic wallet-sized card I could hand out saying, here's how you reach so-and-so, you know, uh-huh. here's your un- union contact. Here's to call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, and I'm Esti Dinor. This is a public affair. My guest is Barbara Ehrenreich, a uh, journalist, and I, I will stick to it, a public intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about um, her experiences as a low-income worker. We'll be talking about other things, too, and we invite you to join us at um, 256-2001. Now, Barbara, the, um, the minimum uh, wage has... Um, not gone up as much as inflation ha- has and as much as uh, living costs have. Um, what, what can you say about that? Well, there hasn't been enough pressure to, to bring it up. I mean, the, this should be a major concern. It should affect all, you know, all sorts of people because a change in the minimum wage can help lift all boats or at least you know, all uh, of those people in the, the 40 or 50 percent of the workforce that are you know, blue collar, pink collar, etc. Uh, I'm. It's five fifteen an hour now. That is not a subsistence wage. I won't even use the word living. That is. That's an insult. I mean, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, do, do you have any numbers there of um, how <laughs> things have changed? These have been handed to me, but yeah. but I don't see. Um, you know, I. No, I can't give you the exact numbers um, on how it has failed uh, to change over the years. I should also point out that a lot of people are exempted from that minimum wage, as ridiculous as it is. Farm workers, for example. Uh, Restaurant workers. Do you know what we got paid as waitresses? Um, And this, again, national chain, very familiar. uh, If I were, I don't. I don't want to say the name. I'm not looking for lawsuits from them. <laughs> but we were paid $2.15 an hour. Mm-hmm. Now, that's less than half um, the, the minimum wage. And the rest was supposed to be tips. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, an interesting fact that you know, actually a very tragic fact, that a lot of these people you were working with were basically homeless. Yeah. No, I mean, my big question was, well, how do people how do, people do it on these wages? Well, and they don't. They don't. Yeah. yeah. I mean... Uh, 
some of the people I worked with would not have considered themselves homeless because they had a van to sleep in yeah or a car to sleep in yeah they think homeless is you're actually on the street uh other people um would would share a motel room and that at first scandalized me you know and like the good middle class reformer that i am i said hey how can you do that you're paying forty dollars a night why don't you rent an apartment well they said where would we get the money for the um security deposit in the first month's rent right and then that was like oh duh you know, naturally, that is an insurmountable barrier. Now, in the most recent stint in Maine, I did not see any evidence of homeless among my homelessness among my coworkers. People seem to have large extended families. They live in multi-generational situations or with roommates. But I did see evidence of hunger. Uh-huh. And that was extremely um, appalling. You know, to work, this is hard labor. This is heavy labor under a great deal of time pressure. We worked up to nine hours a day, and there were people who ate nothing during that nine hours uh-huh. and had no money in their pockets. Yeah, and I hate to think about what happens to their kids. We have um, callers on the line, so let's get to the phones. The number here is 256-2001. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, I Hi. have a question. Um, the uh, apology for minimum wage is that you're supposed to use this as an entry-level job and then go get a new job that pays better. And I'm wondering if the short time that you were at these places, how many of your fellow workers got promoted or quit their jobs to go do something better? And how many of them were stuck there for a long time? Well, Pete, there is high turnover in the low-wage workforce in general, but it's more of a churning than a, than a steady movement up, as far as I could see. Uh, one reason you know, for moving on to another job wasn't so much the money, uh, but um, in some of these jobs, the, the physical... Um, the price of working in them. Uh, the, the cleaning job, for example, uh, produces um, repetitive stress injuries, backs go out, knees goes, you have to scrub floors on your hands and knees for some <laughs> sick, archaic reason. Uh, and so most people that I saw move on were talking about their, their health as much as anything, and they were moving on to uh, equally low-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. And and another point is that most of these people don't have any kind of health care. Well, you can get all, most of the jobs I worked in did offer health insurance uh, after three months of work, uh-huh. but it was uh, at the kind where you had to contribute a great deal out of your own wages uh, and, and not very good. So, so a lot of people passed on that. It just wasn't worth it. Yeah, you can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's get to our uh, next caller. Hi, you on the air. Hi there. Uh, thanks a lot for your efforts, and I commend your, uh, you know, effort to do this. I'd like to see you follow up on uh, a person in that same type of situation who gets their credit rating damaged, and do a little expose on the credit rating system and how there's just a variety of uh, syndromes that seem to happen. Uh, basically, if you get into a jam, uh, declare bankruptcy. The old myth is seven years and you have a free record. I'm going on 10 years and there's absolutely no free record. There's no positive side to the ledger as far as credit rating. There's only negative marks. There's just a whole host of uh, misinformation out there. And I just find it appalling that uh, you just never get out of, this is supposed to be the land of the second opportunity with the exception of the credit rating. And I'd just like to hear your comments on that, if you would. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I thought <laughs> I thought the seven years was real. Um, that's that's horrifying. Yeah, I mean, the credit rating has become like a sort of a measure of your virtue and your value as a human being. You damage that credit rating, you're, you're finished. I had a big fight with a credit card company last year, so I'm coming <laughs> off of that myself. But, um, you know, and, and, and saw my credit rating ruined and saw the effects of that for a while. But, um, you know, there's no, I don't think there's any counseling or education about credit cards and the the, the dangers of them. I knew one woman in one of these jobs who had an $8,000 credit card debt, and that's mm. probably a little more than she earns in a year. I mean, she will never dig her way out, but she made this debt when she was quite young. Um, and I don't think there's anybody's saying, you know, we, have, we should have a warning label on those credit cards, you know, like we do on cigarettes that says, you are risking your long-term financial health, uh, this is a, a you know a hazardous you know substance in your hands, and and actually this brings another issue, which is when you're poor, there's a lot of things you can't get. So in order to get them to survive, um, you have to go to places where they will cost you a lot more. For example, if you do have an apartment but it's not furnished, in order to get furniture, you often have to go to these places that. Um, let you rent get, to buy, uh, yeah. right? Things like that, or you'll have to go to these places that cash your checks because you can't afford <laughs> to have a bank account, and um, take huge amounts out of your check. Uh, not to mention, a lot of people don't have cars and can't get to places where they can get things cheaply. It costs a lot to be poor. Exactly, and that was one of my discoveries. You know, I thought, well, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's no problem. Maybe people in poverty have worked out some great angles so that they can live on these ridiculously bad wages. But no, it's the opposite. It's expensive to be poor. Uh, the food thing is a big one. If you don't have a kitchen or an adequately stocked kitchen, and I, and I didn't, and though I had furnished apartments, they didn't really come with kitchenware, then you can't make up the big healthy lentil stew that's going to last you for a week. Uh, you don't have Tupperware, so you can't freeze it if you could make it up. And, and then you're, and you're, you have to decide, what I, do I want to make the capital investment in things like that? And likely is that you say, no, I think I'll just go to the convenience store or the fast food place and get my dinner for tonight. Yeah. So you, you're kept in that situation. Yeah. Well, um, let's get back to the phones. And um, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Thank you for this program. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just, I turned in late. So I'm wondering how you uh, plan to uh, uh, write down your experiences in a book or a, a journalistic article. I stand and I feel of awe of your gumption to directly experience how the working poor are uh, trying are surviving. I have another question. Uh, how can the, the labor movement, what should the labor movement be doing uh, to, uh, uh, to reach temporary workers and to reach these working poor? Could they be setting up workers' center to provide some of the services like uh, uh, low-cost furniture, low-cost uh, checks uh, across the country? Uh, could they be providing, uh, encouraging uh, middle-class students uh, to uh, uh, engage in the kind of experience you have of going and seeing how the working poor really have to live? Uh, should they be raising the demand for uh, an annual minimum uh, uh, wage of, of $20,000 or, or $30,000 instead of a, a, a minimum wage, I think a, a minimum uh, yearly income. Uh, I'm wondering what, what, what do you, some of the things you, th uh, where are you going to uh, put this down, 
and what do you think the labor movement should be doing to help these people? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to put this together as a book. Um, the title may well be the title that the Harper's article had, which was Nickel and Dimed. Um, as for what the union should do, uh, they, the AFL-CIO is launching a campaign to win the right to organize, because right now that doesn't exist. I mean, you, if you start organizing in one of these places, you would be fired. And there would be another reason for the firing, believe me. You know, they would say, well, we thought she was stealing or uh, something. We didn't like her attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll be, and by the time you've defended yourself in that, six months have gone by and forget about it. So um, the FLCIO is, is going to launch this drive to get the right to organize, which means changes in labor laws locally and nationally. I think that's not enough. I think for one thing, it's not just the right to organize that's missing in the, in the workplace. It's the freedom of speech is missing, freedom of assembly, uh, the right to any kind of privacy is missing. Uh, and I think it would be bolder uh, and more dramatic if the uh, unions would say, we're launching a, a civil rights movement for American workers to give people in the workplace all the rights that a, a citizen should have in this country. I mean, democracy should not end at the door uh, when you go to work. We're back live in 2022, and that's where the tape ends. That was Esti Janur's interview with journalist, activist, and author Barbara Ehrenreich on a public affair in the WRT studios from 1999. Rest in power, Barbara Ehrenreich. And that brings us to the end of our show today. Thanks to Alyssa Court for joining us for the first half, and to host Esti Denour and WORT News Director Sholly Pittman for helping us locate the 1999 interview. An unedited version of the interview will be available later this evening on WORTFM.org. Thanks to Chuck Cademan for running the soundboard today. This hour of radio was produced and hosted by me, Rochelle Wilson. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. Up next is Letters and Politics. Thanks for listening. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen. Listen and support it. Ha <laughs> ha.